Welcome to the latest episode of The Third Wheel, a podcast from Herbert Smith Freehills on all things ESG. I'm Tim Stutt, partner in our Sydney office, specialising in corporate governance, market disclosure, risk management and shareholder engagement and activism. Today, my co-host is Catherine Pacey, a partner in our Brisbane office and member of our environment planning and communities practice. Regular listeners may well recall that this is Catherine's second appearance on The Third Wheel after sharing her post-election insights in a recent episode. Welcome back, Catherine. Thanks, Tim. Listeners are in for a bit of a treat today. It mm-hmm. promises to be a wide-ranging, globe-spanning discussion on energy transition, decarbonisation, technology and investment. I'm delighted to introduce Dr Chris Greig, the Theodora and William Walton III Senior Research Scientist at the Andlinger Centre for Energy and the Environment at Princeton University. Welcome, Chris. Hello, Tim. Um, yeah, and I'm delighted to be joining the conversation and, of course, to reconnect with Catherine from the other side of the world again. The accent has probably given it away already, but Chris, while joining us from New Jersey today, is also an adjunct professor in the School of Chemical Engineering at the University of Queensland, from which he has a degree and a PhD in chemical engineering. He's also a fellow fellow of the Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering. Prior to becoming an academic in 2011, Chris spent more than 25 years in industry initially as founder and CEO of a successful process technology company, and then later in senior executive roles in resources and energy. He has also held a number of non-executive roles, including Deputy Chairman of Gladstone Ports Corporation, one of Australia's largest energy export hubs, Chairman of the Energy Policy Institute of Australia, and Director of several engineering and mining firms. Chris won various awards during his industry career, including the Floor Award for Outstanding Engineering Management, the Queensland Premier's Exporter of the Year Award, and the Institution of Engineers Australia Project Management Award. Chris, we're delighted to have you today. To begin with, we'd like to ask our guests at the start of each episode, why is ESG important and what does it mean to you personally? So, Tim, I like the idea of ESG, which I think is a really powerful one. I mean, the notion that environmental and social values, among others, ought to feature in the decisions, investments and practices of business and other institutions is crucial. Um, And it simply had to happen. You know, what we've managed to do to the natural environments over the course of industrialisation is really quite staggering. 50 years ago, rivers were burning in the US, toxic waste flowed unrestricted into oceans and streams. And and people have been forced to work in awful conditions and under unsafe practices. Communities have had landscapes and amenity destroyed. So we were really on a path to self-destruction. And so let's not think that we've been great corporate citizens taking bold steps in this direction. We've actually come very late on the back of irreversible destruction. Uh, And in reality, we had no choice. Um, Now, of course, don't take my comments as though I have any right to preach. I've been as guilty as anyone. I spent three decades in industry and have been part of the problem, uh, very much so. And I'm not suggesting that industrialisation hasn't done an enormous amount of good. It obviously has. Uh, But what ESG should offer, I think, is a framework for us to recognise that there has to be some conditionality applied to the development. Um, what conditions are considered appropriate, of course, is going to be up for interpretation and different stakeholders 
will see it differently. And, and, and for that reason, I think application of ESG principles tends to be quite inconsistent. Uh, so, so whilst I think it's a really powerful uh, agenda, what concerns me about the whole movement, currently at least, is, is that there's a lack of transparency and consistency. So we tend to conflate lots of so-called ESG initiatives uh, in the name of sustainability, uh, but really a lot of it's just a twist on, on what's really business as usual. Uh, so ultimately, we've got to do a lot better. And I think, alas, we need probably much stronger regulation if we're going to assure the authenticity of, of these ESG initiatives and claims. Thanks, Chris. That's a, that's a really great answer. And I think a lot of it is about correcting that balance as well, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's, it's so lovely to get to speak with you again after you um, visited our, our Brisbane office. Uh, your research interests and teaching cover everything from energy transition, carbon capture and storage, industry decarbonisation, energy finance and investment. So just a few things. Um, but let's begin with your Net Zero America project, um, which was about finding pathways to Net Zero. Can you describe for our listeners some of the research highlights? Sure. Um, I think it might be helpful first, though, to go back to sort of how that all came about. Um, and it was back in late 2018, and a colleague and I were approached by one of Princeton's luminary researchers who urged us to consider doing a study that might elucidate in really tangible and visceral way just what it might take um, to get the entire US economy to net zero by 2050. And, you know, at, at, at behind his plan was really to have this ready for a potential transition to a new Democratic president at the end of 2020, which, you know, obviously none of us knew was certain to happen. Um, the one thing I knew is that we needed to do something much different from the usual modelling studies that have typically informed these plans um, and and against which we continually fail, right? We've been showing pathways to net zero or, or to below two degrees C for, for decades now, and, and we always keep missing. So the first condition we applied was, was a need to be technology neutral. We, we did not want this to be about ideology. Uh, and we did that by framing five very different pathways. And, and we chose these pathways by adjusting our reliance on dis different technological levers. So, so on the demand side, we had scenarios with very high rates of electrification, for example, on vehicles and buildings. And then we had another one, which was you know, a much more modest uh, uptake of electrification. And then on the supply side, we had scenarios with very few restrictions, uh, but the focus was on minimising costs. So these were kind of the middle of the road scenarios. And then we had others which said, you know, no fossil fuel use or no nuclear uh, in, by 2050. And so they are essentially 100% renewables and, and most of that being wind and solar. And then on the other end of that, we had um, a, a scenario which constrained the build rates of wind and solar to roughly historical levels or to the best, best historical level. And they relied sort of heavily on things like natural gas with CC carbon capture and storage and, and also nuclear. So these these turned out to be five really different scenarios. And our position was uh, all of them could be valid. We don't have a preference. Um, in fact, we used to say 
the best pathway to net zero is the one you can actually get done given all the political, social, technological and financial challenges. But the really unique part of the project, uh, and really I think the first of its kind ever, was what was was a, a an approach we called downscaling. Uh, so this essentially involved taking the, the relatively coarse macro scale model results and using these specialised algorithms that would allow us to cite the tens of thousands of individual assets that needed to be built over the duration of this transition at a, at a very fine uh, spatial scale, so right down to roughly square mile status. So that's essentially postcode level, if you like, or even, or even finer. And these maps proved to be really influential. Um, you know, firstly, we received a huge amount of media attention. We, we were the cover story on The Economist, uh, The New York Times, Washington Post, um, among lots of other media outlets, but also with government, we had a huge influence there. And so we've given hundreds of briefings, you know, in different elements of the White House, on the Hill, government agencies, companies, financial institutions, um, over the year that followed. Um, the second benefit was that it allowed us to really drill in on the critical issues that we thought were going to make or break this transition. And, and the first of those, there's really four, right? The first of those is it's the, the speed and scale of infrastructure you have to build is absolutely unprecedented in history. Uh, you know, we have to immediately double the rates of deployment of things like wind and solar and transmission, and we have to keep doubling each decade, right? Uh, and to do that, we're going to have to mobilise risk capital at, at, a, at a pace which is much faster than the energy sector has ever seen um, in order to build the pipeline of those projects that constitute that, that infrastructure. And then the third one was maintaining the social contract. So you're talking about three decades of unprecedented change in people's uh, livelihoods, right? The landscape is changing. There's construction going on. Um, the visual amenity is changing with renewables. But but also, you, you really it's just a whole lot of stuff going on for this three decades. Um, and the cumulative impacts of those is going to be really hard to maintain that contract with with uh, the communities. And then the fourth one was really about the workforce. So it turns out that in addition to being capital intensive, these transitions are very labour intensive, right? So, so that's a good thing in the sense of you're creating jobs. It's a challenge in the sense that you have to mobilise a workforce at a pace which is really frightening for those of us who have experience in building large capital projects. And the flip side of that is you've got these incumbent industries and workforce that you're going to have to bring along. So you've really got to assure that there's going to be an equitable transition uh, for, for those communities and workers. So, so it's about speed and scale of infrastructure. It's about the flow of risk capital. It's about the social contract with communities, and it's about the workforce mobilisation and adjustments for the incumbents and and they you know they're the things that really stood out the maps were hugely influential uh and and they then allowed us the the granularity we were able to achieve through this process would allowed us to really drill into what matters for policymakers for communities for the industry does that give you a sense of the highlights 
It does. Thank you, Chris. And I, I think until you actually see those maps, the I, I know you talk about the the scale of the task ahead, but until you see those maps, it's it's actually mind boggling to see how much infrastructure needs to be built so quickly. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's not a surprise to hear how influential they were either. Certainly, it is very striking to see the familiar landscape of the US uh, and visually see how it changes under the different under the different scenarios and the scale of infrastructure which needs to occur um, to reach net zero. Uh, I understand that you're doing a similar study for Australia with the aim of providing some actionable guidance for policymakers and stakeholders in this jurisdiction. It sort of seems like we have more policy certainty now than we probably have had on this issue previously. What do you see as the most urgent investments for Australia to achieve its net zero commitments? Yeah, so so let's just preface. I mean, I think this, you know, the policy setting in Australia is is much better. Um, I'm not sure it's the strongest we've ever seen. I mean, back in 2007 through nine, there were, you know, very strong um, uh, kind of drivers in place then. I mean, they they didn't turn out to last, uh, but I, you know, I think we were pretty confident back then in a similar stage. Um, but to the net zero Australia kind of, or what it's going to take for Australia, I guess, you know, I, I'd like to sort of start by saying that the net zero Australia study that, that you know, we've been working with the University of Melbourne and the University of Queensland and NAUS group on is actually going to be released uh, in late August, so you know, in a month or so from now. So I'm not going to steal their thunder, but I think there's some clear observations I can easily make. Uh, the first is I, I don't think the kind of policy setting should make us complacent. I mean, right now we are strong on ambition, uh, but I don't really think we have a policy framework in place yet that is adequate to support the speed and scale, you know, the speed especially and the scale of investment needed. Secondly, we're pretty clear on the targets uh, for Australia's domestic economy, both both the longer term target of 2050 and, and 2030, and that's good. We remain somewhat vague on the plan for exports, so there's this loose narrative about becoming a clean energy export superpower. Uh, but of course, both with the domestic targets and and this clean energy export future. It, you know, I don't think there's enough clarity on just what that would take. You know, what does it look like on the ground? Uh, what is the infrastructure involved? What is the capital flow involved? So those those big highlights that came out of Net Zero America, I mean, we need them. And, and so don't get me wrong, the strong ambition is a great start. And, and it is only early days, and so we have to give this government time to formulate these plans. And the Net Zero Australia part, uh, study is really going to help the government on the, in that regard. Um, to your point about investments, I mean, what's clear is in any of these Net Zero uh, scenarios, especially for a country that, you know, is fast like Australia, we're going to need lots of solar and wind, transmission, battery storage, hydro, um, CCS, you know, 
I mean, a lot of people sort of are against CCS. There is no pathway to net zero that doesn't involve really significant CCS at scale. Uh, and we have to do a lot of work on the land sector, you know, the natural uh, areas. Um, and all of these are going to have to exp to expand at, at a speed that is far greater than we've seen in Australia, right, historically, far greater. And I'm not going to uh, go into kind of estimates of that because the Net Zero Australia project will actually spell that out in stark terms. So, so I think, you know, we're heading in the right direction in terms of the ambition setting. We've got you know, a long way to go to get in place a robust policy framework that can that can support the delivery of this. Uh, and and you know, we're gonna it's gonna be it's going to be, I think that, you know, you made the comment earlier that the Net Zero America study was really enormously impactful and really took your breath away in terms of the scale. You should expect that, you know, I'm not preempting, but you should expect more of the same for Australia. I think you're right that that we have ambition and, as you say, if net zero America is any indication, we're going to have a lot to do very, very quickly. Um, what what do you see as the hurdles to achieving that ambition? Well, you know, I think the first and obvious one is uh, durability, right? Um, it, you know, as I said earlier, back in 20, 2007, we were kind of, I've, it feels a bit similar, right? I mean, for those of us who are old enough to have been, you know, right at the front and centre of, of uh, clean energy transitions back then. And, of course, what was lacking was bipartisanship. And the reality is in the, the sort of political environment we're in, unless we have kind of bipartisanship and the ability to find what, what Rob Sokolow, another famous Princeton uh, academics, calls... Um, middle building, you know, unless we can find the solutions and the and the narratives that are middle building, then I think that's going to be our biggest obstacle to net zero. I mean, the next four years is going to be critical to get us started, but it doesn't get us there, right? Um, we we actually need something that is going to be durable with bipartisan support that's going to in, take us through to 2050 and beyond. Um, and I think the other thing I would say is let's not get let ideology get in the way of pursuing a a durable, fair, and equitable path to net zero. So my observation around energy transitions, not just in Australia but really the world over, is is there's quite a lot of ideology which I think is destructive. So people who say I'm all for net zero. But provided it doesn't allow CCS to participate and provided that the fossil fuel industry isn't part of this and provided, you know, all of this conditionality that gets applied, um, you know, I think we have to be a lot more pragmatic and recognise that this is hard. It, it does require, I think, the support of all sectors of industry. I think we have to be open-minded to all of the technologies that can participate. And so I think, you know, it's I don't think it's clear yet what the actual policies of the government are going to be. I mean, the targets are clear and that's and they're they're fine. I'm, I think the 2030 target is is adequate and and if we can deliver on that, that's gonna get set us in the right direction. Uh, nonetheless, we still have to have a clear line of sight that 
beyond the 43 percent by 2030, there is a, a you have to be set on a pathway which is consistent with zero in 2050, and and that's not necessarily going to be the case, right? So there are pathways that could lock us into something, lock us into a less than ideal long-term outcome, but get us to 43. So I think it has to be both short and long-term planning involved here. Um, I hope I've answered your question. Um, but, but yeah, I think, I think my biggest point here is going to be you know, if you talk about increased policy certainty and, and hurdles, I think that issue of durability is is the critical one, uh, and finding these kind of bipartisan middle building approaches and being ready to ha- engage all stakeholders, including the fossil fuel industry, on this transition. I think that's that's going to be. I think they're the biggest kind of elements to to success. I have to say, the point around durability and middle building resonates. And I sort of hope we're starting to see the start of some of that middle building um, and the sort of um, the coming together of, of a more um, consistent, consolidated approach, um, hopefully. Mm. One of So the government has flagged that it's going to be introducing a number of pieces of legislation um, in this area, and one of the um, the priorities that it's identified is working with business to unleash pent up private investment in energy generation. Um, for the last few years, business has led on quite a bit of of um, of this area. I'd be keen for your thoughts, though, on whether or not the private sector needs more encouragement to invest. Um, or whether you think it's a case of really policy needs to come first um, and and from policy will flow um, further investment? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, I I suspect the way I describe the private sector is it's been leading. We have not been going anywhere near the speed and scale that needs to happen. So, so that needs to be elevated at a much higher level. Um, that won't happen with just a few price signals and, and policies, in my view. I mean, you know, let's wait and see the Net Zero Australia story. But I think what you're going to see is a story that is such a, such a huge amount of ambition and such a huge undertaking that I've been of the view both of the everywhere in the world that needs to do this transition that this is kind of a special kind of partnership between the private sector and government that we haven't really seen before, right? Um, and so I think to achieve the way I've often said this, people say to me, "Oh, this net zero is too hard," and I say, "No, net zero is actually inevitable and it's not hard. The hard bit's the speed." Net zero by 2100 or 2150 is easy. Net zero by 2050 is hard. And so, you know, price signals alone and the typical markets, letting markets do the work, to me, and, you know, many economists will disagree with me violently, to me they are not going to be enough to stimulate things at the speed we need. And part of that is because, it's such a complex sector. You know, we've got changes in the demand side. So, for example, electrification of vehicles, um, 
you know, hydrogen use in industry, et cetera. Um, we've got uh, innovation on the supply side. So wind and solar are running fine and batteries are coming down and, you know, they need to come down further. Um, but we're slow to build transmission. Um, that's a challenge. Um, and there's a bunch of other technologies we're going to need, right? So we're going to need some CCS. We're going to need some industrial decarbonisation technologies. And the challenge is how to stimulate both the demand side technology developments and, and the supply side in a coordinated fashion, which is also going to mean we have to uh, stimulate the infrastructure build, right? Whether it's transmission or CO2 pipelines or, or ports to export hydrogen or some form of thereof. This, there's so many moving parts here and so many what I call chicken and egg issues that the coordination of these. So I think government, you know, that's probably the role I see particularly for governments, not just in Australia but everywhere, is a role in recognising the speed challenge. Um, and that comes, you know, the, the, the failure to recognise this in, in part comes from the models we use, right, because a lot of the models we use have very high levels of foresight and they have baked in technology cost trajectories, et cetera, um, which, which imply a level of foresight. And the reality is that nothing ever goes that way, right? Who, who was really calling that we're going to have this hyperinflation period we're going through right now a year and a half ago? Um, so with that high inflation and with, with the rising costs of capital, we've, the world's become much more uncertain, right? And so... You know, coordination and stimulating all of these things in sync in a synchronized way really um, is is the way to overcome the uncertainty and the lack of foresight that business faces. Uh, so, so you know, business has been doing the, the if I can just summarize, business has been doing the heavy lifting for sure. Um, and but I, but I do think to achieve the kind of speed of net zero by 2050 that the government's going to have to step in and play a much more hands-on role in coordination and and working with business uh, in a way that has not been typical. Thanks, Chris. It's and we we touched on it earlier, but there's there's such a big balance that we need to get right and really quickly between biodiversity, communities, and decarbonisation. Um, and I think we've we've got to be really careful to make sure that communities come along on this journey so we don't end up with it being a great idea so long as it happens in someone else's community. I mean, these, these big infrastructure projects often have the issue that the community that's impacted is not necessarily the community that gets the benefits, and that's difficult to manage. Um, and I know you looked at part of this for, for Net Zero America as well, but there there is that... Um, that community element that's so important and transition can be positive for some communities and negative for others um, and for workforces, which is going to be such an important part of, of delivery. So, so what steps can be taken in preparing for net zero to manage that transition risk and benefit? Yeah, th thanks, Catherine. That, this is a great it, it's question. I mean, it's, a, it's just a critical issue um, and I'm glad you talk about it. And I don't have any kind of uh, magic bullet advice here. I mean, it's this is this is hard work. Um, and I, you know, in my career, I was involved in a number of controversial projects, and they're hard. Um, and you know, the other it comes back to the speed issue once again. You know, the, the thing I always learned was uh, if you want to bring communities along, don't go too fast, right? 
bring them along in a steady way. But, but of course, net zero by 2050, I think you're gonna, we're all starting to realise that's actually really fast and we don't have time for that. Um, uh, so that means we're going to have to just be, I, I think, you know, just learn to engage um, with communities in a much, and, and, and these incumbent workforces, et cetera, in a much more sensitive way it needs to be part of the upfront planning and it needs to be, you know, deep engagement and sensitive engagement. Um, uh, I actually think, you know, we'll see what, what the Net Zero Australia story looks like, but certainly in the US, I reached the conclusion, unless we find uh, ways to actually partner with communities which are new and innovative, and I mean, I'm even talking about, you know, communities being deeply involved in projects, in siting decisions, in and, and even in the ownership of projects, right? Um, so this is going to be, I think, an essential part. Uh, and so it means moving away from, you know, in my day in industry, what I would have called um, achieving passive acceptance, right? So, so you'd, you'd done your job with the community if they didn't say no. Um, that's very different with the scale and and the the cumulative impacts of what these net net zero transitions are going to look like. It's going to need a much more active and I would say um, contract, almost like a compact with society, where they are actually your allies in the project. They're deeply involved and so forth. Uh, and that's you know I, I think there'll be a bit of pushback from some of the listeners on that, but. You know, the reality is the first projects will be the easiest. And then the more this goes on, I think the, the, the harder it's going to get. And so what we do early to kind of win the trust and build this durable relationship with communities, I think is crucial. Um, and the same thing will be true with, you know, incumbent uh, industries and, and, and communities. So whether it's the um, the coal basins in Queensland or the Hunter Valley or the Latrobe Valley, et cetera, um, you, you know, and there, and that's not, it's not just about coal, right? There's a lot of incumbent industries that, and, and communities that are going to be affected by this. So, I mean, I, this is central. And if, you know, uh, maybe I didn't say that on one of your earlier questions about what the government should be doing, but if it isn't, really focused on getting that bit right um, and 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 insisting that 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 uh, the business community and the developers get this right uh, I think this is going to head off the rails really quickly so so I think you know there, there are those four critical issues this was number three I wouldn't say it's number three in order um in fact I think they're all sort of uh, equally weighted so I should have made that clear then but yeah um what you're saying is correct, Catherine, it's critical. And I guess a big part of the um, durability point that you made as well and the middle building and ensuring that this will be successful long term and not just you know, in the immediate term. Absolutely. Thanks for, for joining us today, Chris. It's been great. We, we very much appreciate you spending your time sharing your insights. Um, Regular listeners to our podcast will be expecting our usual close, which is a fact from the world of ESG. However, we're going to break the rules today and shamelessly plug an upcoming HSF report on unlocking investment in ESG, very apropos for our discussion today. The report's going to have an Australian focus in light of us having a new government 
and uh, the increasing momentum and, um, you know, while not perfect, better policy certainty than we've previously had over the last few years. And how can that be leveraged for greater levels of investment being deployed in energy transition and also across ESG more broadly? Dr. Grieg has tentatively agreed to, to lend his insights to the report. His blood oath is pending, um, and we invite our listeners to do the same. If you would like to participate and are based in Australia, you can you can do so by completing a short survey. Simply email globalesg.tracker at hsf.com by the end of July 2022, and we'll make sure we get the survey to you. As ever, thanks for listening. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.